Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor of pediatric emergency medicine sounds the alarm about a mental health crisis affecting children and adolescents. The um, fact is that suicide is happening among young people, even though we don't want to always believe it. It is happening among young people in both central New York area and across the country. A child psychologist explains how pandemic stress impacts even young children. If you think about, you know, three-year-olds can be in preschool, and so they're being seen in those environments, and people are noticing something is different, something is unusual. This kid is not functioning in the way that they normally do. And a fertility expert discusses how the COVID-19 virus may affect a man's fertility. Sometimes we get like sperm function goes down, and patients may have some like sperm DNA fragmentation. All that and what happens when you test positive for HIV, along with a visit from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a fertility expert has some advice for men about the virus that causes COVID-19. But first, a child psychologist and a pediatric emergency physician explain why children are facing a mental health crisis and how it's fueling an increase in suicides among children from age 10 to 24. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Rates of mental health challenges are soaring among children, adolescents, and their families throughout the pandemic. So today I'm talking about this important issue with two experts in caring for children from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. Pediatrician Greg Connors is professor and chair of pediatrics at Upstate, and child psychologist Jennifer Rapke is the chief of the child psychiatry consult service at Golisano. I welcome both of you back to HealthLink on Air. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, suicide is the second leading cause of death for young people between the ages of 10 and 24. And I think it's tempting to believe that this can't be happening here in our community. So please tell us what you're seeing. Dr. Connors, what percent of pediatric emergency department visits are for mental health emergencies? Sure. Thanks for bringing up that important topic. The um, fact is that suicide is happening among young people, even though we don't want to always believe it. It is happening among young people in both central New York area and across the country. But much more than that, for every completed suicide, we see a large number of incomplete suicides that where, where someone didn't actually die or discussion of suicide gestures or just talk about, I'd like to die or maybe the world would be better off without me. So we see large numbers of children like that. And uh, it, it ends up being about 10% or so of the children who come to our emergency department these days, our pediatric emergency department, are there for mental health related reasons. Um, and it's not just a central New York phenomenon across the country, the large increases in emergency department visits too, uh, especially during the COVID era. During the last couple of years, the number of ED evaluations for suicide attempts in adolescent girls has increased 50%. And uh, Wow. Yeah, and children under 12, even those young kids, 24% in, in emergency department mental health visits during the COVID era. Teens, 31% increase. So we're seeing an increase locally and nationally. And that's huge. And do you attribute it to sort of the stress of all of the pandemic? Dr. Rapke? Uh, we definitely have seen an increase with COVID. However, our community as well as many communities nationally, we're seeing an increase in numbers before COVID even hit. Actually, prior to, you know, we consider March of 2020 really sort of the beginning of COVID because that's when schools closed. We, February was our busiest month in the last three years prior to that. So in the couple months before COVID really shut everything down, we were already seeing a significant increase in kids coming in. Over the last three years, we've had a 400% increase at Upstate in the number of kids presenting with mental health complaints. When you talk to these kids, what are some of the things, I mean, do you see any trends in what they point to? Um, are they able to say this is what's causing stress in my life? During COVID, we definitely saw most of the kids talking about isolation as being a primary factor that was driving their symptoms. Since 
COVID has kind of morphed over time and the kids are being able to be back in school, we're not hearing as much about isolation as just everything in their world is changing all of the time. Parents are feeling very stressed and unable to handle things like they normally would be able to. Um, and certainly, you know, academic stress now for those kids that are struggling to get back into the routine of life and, and academics as they were previously. Let me ask you for kids who had sort of a pre-existing issue before the pandemic, let's say an eating disorder, has the pandemic had an impact on things like that? I think we've seen an increase in eating disorders as well. It's harder to tell if that was already happening prior to COVID or if COVID really put that into overdrive, but we certainly have seen an increase in presentations for eating disorders. Many of those cases used to go to Rochester to Strong Memorial, and now they have so many cases that we're having to hold kids here at Golisano as well for those issues and really trying to manage. Again, you know, one of the primary drivers in eating disorders is a needing a sense of control. And as everybody can imagine, the world feels very out of control for most people the last few years. And so that really um, triggers something like an eating disorder even further. And I'm going to repeat a point that we heard earlier, which is that this is not new during COVID. It certainly increased, but it was already way on the upward trend. Um, in fact, the num it's become that the number two cause of death and children aged 10 to 24 is suicide in the United States. This is something that came on a few years ago. And so, so it was already present and people were already worrying quite a lot about it. And then COVID has just amplified the rate. So it's two phenomena on top of each other. So COVID didn't cause it, but COVID seems to be making it worse. That's right. Can you describe how these children present when they come to the emergency department? Sure. And just for background, I'm a pediatric emergency physician, so that's where I work clinically. And I'm also the chairman of a national committee on pediatric emergencies through the American Academy of Pediatrics. So I sort of have this national perspective too. So um, children, while they present with a variety of ways, all the way from actual suicidal uh, act, taking pills or hurting themselves in some other way, that we see some of that for sure, but that's really not the majority. The majority are people who make some kind of a suicide gesture, perhaps cutting themselves or discussing suicide, or maybe the world would be better off without me, words like that, or some other form of uh, severe anxiety, talking about uh, hurting someone else at school or, or hurting someone in family. So a wide variety of ways that presentations, schools are seeing more and more uh, kids acting out and are getting less and less willing to accept that until the kids go back to class. These days, there's a lot more of what you might call zero tolerance because of concern that this might actually end up resulting in an actual suicide or an aggressive act. So lots of those kids are coming to the emergency department these days. Once they come to the emergency department and are recognized as having mental health issues, we do the same kind of intake that we do on any other patient getting their history and that sort of thing. Physical examination, make sure that, that there aren't multiple things going on or that we're not missing something. And then we're fortunate that we at Upstate are able to turn to a set of mental health colleagues, Dr. Rapke and colleagues are able to come to the emergency department and assess these patients. Then we make a decision about if they need to be admitted to our hospital or to a mental health facility or are able to go home and be connected with a, a counselor or psychologist, something of that nature. In fact, many of them already have those, some of those resources in place, but it hasn't been as effective as it could be, or they're having a, a crisis. So we're, we're often able to reconnect those patients with their previously existing sources of mental health care. So let me ask you a little bit more about that. How do you decide who gets admitted and who is okay to go back home? Yeah, so fortunately we're able to rely on the expert opinion from mental health professionals, psychiatrists, and, and a whole mental health team, including child psychologists and child psychiatrists. And we're really lucky to have Dr. Rapke not only with us today, but able to take care of our patients on a regular basis and really give us advice as emergency physicians. We can recognize certainly some, you know, some of the basics, but it's great to have a, a real in-depth expert team as well. And so they help us deciding if patients are okay to go home safe, or need extended stay in the hospital. Um, and there are also inpatient mental health specific centers. We have only eight beds here at Upstate, but there are other inpatient mental health facilities for children in the region 
And so they can help us place a patient in one of those facilities if they need that, although almost always they're full. And so it's hard to find them a, a room in the end. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air with your host, Amber Smith. My guests are from the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital, pediatrician Dr. Greg Connors and child psychologist Jennifer Rapke. So Dr. Rapke, it was challenging for parents to find a good child psychologist or counselor or therapist before COVID. And with the demand for mental health services being so high, what's being done to help kids who need help? That's a really challenging question and something that as a society and a nation we're struggling with currently. There's a lot of um, advocacy points that are out there of things that are needed that are certainly not enough right now. But one of the things that concretely happened in respective to COVID was telehealth was something that got used much more frequently. So we were able to offer those services more remotely, especially to people that were at a distance. Um, as some people may know, Golisano serves a large region. It's not just the local area. So we serve a lot of counties, some of which could be hours away and not able to physically come to appointments and things. So telehealth expansion was a big thing that happened over the last two years. The other thing that happened was an investment in school-based mental health. So there is money and efforts out there to just like we tried to put that into primary care over the last 10 years, now there's a lot more efforts to put that into school-based mental health care where we can access kids. You know, kids are at their primary care doctor and they're at school generally, and so we can try to meet them where they're at a little better. And so most of the districts in our region are trying to involve mental health care in some way in their district. So that was a big change as well, but it's still unfortunately not enough and a lot more work is needed in that area. Many children have lost parents and sometimes both parents to COVID. What is happening to those children? And in general, what sorts of mental health challenges are these kids facing? So bereavement is a natural course of life for most people. You know, many kids, their first loss is a pet or a grandparent. So it is part of a developmental process that most of us go through to lose, you know, a family member or a loved one. Unfortunately, a loss due to COVID was complicated by a lot of things and, and can lead to complicated bereavement in that, you know, many people weren't able to have memorials or ceremonies or religious practices um, in response to the loss. So it didn't give us these opportunities to grieve in the ways that we normally would. And it also created just an added factor into things. You know, certainly COVID is something that's become politicized and, you know, has social implications. And so that complicates bereavement too. That can cause anger or frustration in the way that things were handled or maybe they felt their loved one didn't get the correct medical care that they needed because of strapped resources. So it certainly can breed complicated bereavement. The difficult thing is we have to respect people's bereavement process for what it is. There is data out there that says if we try to give care too soon before the person is ready, it can actually cause worse bereavement for them or cause more symptoms. So we don't wanna make something that's normal abnormal. But it is certainly something we have to keep an eye on and watch a little more closely because a loss due to COVID can cause what's called complicated bereavement or a bereavement that lasts longer or has more mixed feelings or mixed emotions that are caught up in there as well. The children of families of color and also families in uh, poverty have been especially hit by losses of parents or caregivers during COVID. And many of them already had decreased access to other kinds of mental health resources. So although the mental health crisis has been across the board, it has especially hit families, uh, including children of, of color. Absolutely. What are some of the reasons for that? Why are youth of color disproportionately affected by this? Yes. Yeah, so uh, as Dr. Rapke was saying, we have had increased loss of parents and guardians during the COVID pandemic. Also, as, as a background, there's been less resources available, including mental health resources to kids in the school districts and in primary care settings, kind of all across the board uh, available to, to children and families of color. And then also in areas of poverty in central New York has a high uh, poverty rate, especially in Syracuse. And often that's associated with decreased mental health resources. But I am gonna tell you that the largest provider of primary care to children in the area, pediatric primary care is here at Upstate, Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. And there we have, I think, especially good 
resources embedded in primary care for children with mental health needs. So we are helping to address that right here at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. You know, I wanted to ask you also, are you seeing children with physical ailments that are brought on by stress? I know we hear about adults that, you know, ulcers that are brought on by stress. Do you, do you see things like that in kids? I'll start that and, I'll, and Dr. Rafke can amplify, I'm sure. I'll say that as an emergency physician, we'll, we will see children with some of the classic things include, well, you mentioned ulcers, but in children, it tends to be more headaches, stomach aches, and also some unusual kind of rhythmic behaviors that can look like seizures, but seem not to be seizures. And then also we, we see kids will often have cutting behaviors. So fresh cuts or even scars on, usually on their forearms, but other places as well. They can tell us that there's mental health issues, stress going on. I'm sure Dr. Rapke sees a lot more. We actually have an entire separate team member that handles that, led up by Dr. Reagan and a team of pediatric psychologists. So the numbers that we were citing about children with mental health complaints don't even include that entire population of kids that comes in with medical complaints, and they're seen by um, Dr. Reagan and her wonderful team of colleagues. So it's a whole separate group of folks that we are seeing as well that's on top of the traditional mental health crises that we're talking about today. And they try to be embedded in every subspecialty at Upstate, so they're involved in the pulmonary clinic for children with pulmonary illness, um, cystic fibrosis. They're embedded in the hematology oncology population where we can see medical symptoms that are, you know, exacerbated by stress. And then all the kids here in the hospital that Dr. Connors just mentioned. So there's a whole another section of kids that aren't even really who we're talking about today that are being served by a whole another team of people. So that if you add all that together, it's even bigger than we're describing. It can be hard to untangle physical ailments and mental health ailments. I think it's well known that they are that there's an interplay back and forth. A great example is children with asthma. They may well have increased problems with their asthma as a result of stress and mental health. It's not to say they don't have asthma, but but they're working together. In this case, against the child. We've been talking mostly about kids from 10 on up. I wonder, does the pandemic have an effect on babies and toddlers? Do you see that they're picking up on tension in the household or, or not? Our service has seen kids as young as three presenting with mental health chief complaints, which just sounds really intense. But if you think about, you know, three-year-olds can be in preschool. And so they're being seen in those environments and people are noticing something is different. Something is unusual. This kid is not functioning in the way that they normally do. We certainly see kids as young as, you know, 12 to 18 months for developmental delays and concerns. And the Center for Special Needs here at Upstate serves some of those kids in recognizing early intervention and early issues. So absolutely, we see changes in as early as newborns, primarily because they are very keen observers of the environment around them. They learn based on their family, their parents, their caregivers, and all of us as adults are stressed as well. And so they absolutely pick up on that. I think we often underestimate how much kids observe and notice about the people around us. We used to call them the little barometers of the family because they sort of let us know what's going on in the family based on their behavior and how they're acting. We'll continue this discussion with Dr. Connors and Dr. Rapke on Upstate's HealthLink on Air after this short break. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air host, Amber Smith, back with my guest, Dr. Greg Connors, who's the professor and chair of pediatrics at Upstate, and child psychologist Jennifer Rapke, who's the chief of child psychiatry consult service at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. We're talking about how the pandemic has affected children and their mental health. So I'd like to talk about some solutions. I know the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, and the Children's Hospital Association have jointly declared a national state of emergency in children's mental health. Dr. Connors, can you explain what these groups are hoping to accomplish? Sure, and thanks for mentioning that. I think that was a really important statement that these three professional societies kind of highlighted by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is the number one a professional group of pediatricians in the United States, that they all got together and, and declared this uh, national state of emergency in ch children's mental health. 
I think that's a big deal that I would I would recommend that people take a minute or two to take a look at. Easy to find on the internet. Um, I think what what the, the the goal of this state of emergency was really twofold. Number one was to bring awareness, and I think that although you, you and I and and Dr. Rapke you know that this is going on, there are quite a few people who who don't really appreciate the importance and the magnitude of the mental health crisis that we're seeing in children, teens right now, and then also to help to bring resources to help make it right, as you said, solutions. What I think that they're looking for is increase both to access to mental health care and then quality of mental health care. And we can get into specifics, but I think it has to do with working with policymakers mostly to help bring increased financial resources to the mental health community to, to help things like treatment and prevention, school and community-based care, community-based mental health programs, and increased workforce mental health, pediatric in particular mental health workforce really needs increased resources there. And then increased hospital beds, clinic beds, that kind of just room for patients to come. It's really, I consider an investment in pediatric mental health, really similar to that and probably more important than the investment that we're making in roads and bridges and that sort of thing, because this is our, our future. Dr. Rapke mentioned, I think, telemedicine before telehealth. Are there regulatory challenges that threaten telehealth or telemedicine that need to be fixed? So we talk about insurance payments and insurance coverage for physician visits. And before the pandemic, the uh, rate at which a treating physician or psychologist was paid was much, much smaller if a visit was made by telemedicine than in person. And so there, there was really an incentive not to do that and to have patients come in. And so very few folks were actually taking advantage much of telemedicine, offering or, or being able to get appointments uh, through telemedicine. Well, with the pandemic, the recognition that many visits, medical, mental health, all sorts of visits could be just as efficiently done through telemedicine has led to equal reimbursement, whether it via telemedicine or in person or close to it in many cases. And that's really tied to the state of emergency that's been declared by the government through the pandemic. And it also is slated to go away once the pandemic subsides. And so one of the requests from this state of emergency in children's mental health is to continue the availability at full payment of telemedicine for mental health visits for children and teens. So they don't necessarily need to travel a long way to, be, to get connected with their therapist. It helps to remove some of the barriers to mental health treatment. I wonder kids being, you know, digital natives, they're so good on their phones and electronic devices. Are they responding very well to the option for telemedicine for mental health visits at least? I think like most everything, it's one way or the other. So there's half of the kids that really prefer that. They benefit from it. They don't feel as comfortable coming in, especially kids that have really high anxiety or, you know, are even struggling to get out of the house because of their mental health challenges. This offers them a window and a way to do that that's more comfortable to them. And for families that are struggling to get their kids to come to an appointment, you know, this is maybe a better platform. There's another group of kids that have said, I absolutely hate telemedicine. It's awkward. It's weird. I don't like it. I, I don't feel as connected to the person. You know, I, I don't even want to do it anymore unless I can come back in the office. So it's sort of equally <laughs> um, depending on the kid's personality and depending on the challenges that they're facing. So, And by the way, that's not just limited to mental health. We're seeing similar pros and cons and uh, all kinds of uh, chronic illnesses for check-ins and stuff. It's great check in with somebody in six months, see how their kidney or liver disease is doing, for example. Uh, telemedicine is really a benefit for those kind of visits. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Greg Connors and child psychologist Jennifer Rapke about the impact the pandemic has had on children. Dr. Rapke, uh, do schools in central New York communities offer school-based mental health care? So we have quite a few districts in the local area and each one of them is in sort of a different phase of development. Some of them are fully integrated and every one of their schools is offering 
school-based mental health of some kind. Other schools are a little bit earlier on in their development and their process, and they do that a little differently. You know, we have schools of all sizes, shapes, and colors going on right now. And so everyone has to kind of apply it in the way that makes sense for their district and the way that is feasible for their district. And like we talked about earlier, there just aren't necessarily enough providers to go around. And so trying to find people to come into those settings and come into them at the frequency that that's needed is a little bit challenging at the moment, but I think all of them are trying to address it in some way, shape or form. And the county and the state have offered, you know, some reimbursement opportunities for folks that are trying to offer that. Dr. Connors, what role do the professional organizations see community pediatricians playing in making sure that kids get the mental health care that they need? Primary care pediatricians like those in the community are really well trained to do physical exams, give immunizations and talk about those with families, check on developmental stages, safety counseling, all sorts of things in a limited period of time so that they can move on to the next checkup. And adding in mental health screening is really important, but it's difficult time-wise. And many of the pediatricians aren't really as well-trained because it hasn't traditionally been part of pediatric training, although that's changing, you know, to, you know, to do that kind of mental health screening. So. The American Academy of Pediatrics and other groups are calling for increased reimbursement, increased training, and maybe embedding of mental health resources right in with, with primary care pediatric settings. And we're fortunate to have that ability to do it upstate, but certainly we could do more in the primary care setting. And then also helping people identify good sources of referral for patients who are screened and found to be in need of additional mental health care. So helping people connect up with resources for which to refer the kids. Thinking long-term, I'd like to talk about what the pandemic is doing to normal child development. Dr. Rabke, you mentioned a lot of um, the kids mentioned isolation. Has that had a, a lasting impact? I think it's a little early to say confidently what it's going to do. You know, there's data and studies just starting to come out about the effects that we are seeing. Um, there's some concern about Interestingly enough, even with masks up, are kids understanding emotional reactions appropriately? Are they understanding, you know, social cues in the same way? Um, you know, because if half of our face is, is missing, basically, do they understand and interpret things in the same way that they would? There is some concern about delays in social skills and, and social mannerisms that kids are not understanding or lagging in a little bit because they haven't been in schools, you know, or they haven't been around social situations as much. So there's certainly some early concern about some of those issues, but I don't know that we completely understand yet the effect that it might have long-term and, and will those things last now that they're back in their typical school or for the most part, or will they kind of bounce back pretty quickly? Kids are extremely resilient, wonderful creatures. And so um, we don't know if that's sort of a temporary effect right now that we're seeing or if it's something that will remain. Yeah, I was wondering uh, the anxiety, the depression that so many kids are dealing with these days, the, the pandemic has made worse. Do you think it will automatically subside once this crisis ends? I don't think anything in medicine or psychology automatically does. <laughs> um, sorry to say our field of psychology is a field of it depends, you know, and we, it really depends on a lot of factors in their world. Are the people around them recovering in a healthy, appropriate way? Are the resources around them back to where they were or back to a new normal that's good? Are they surrounded by good, healthy influences or have they really gotten off track during those couple years of, of difference. We also don't know what the pandemic has in store for all of us. You know, there's some warning signs right now of rising rates and, and rising concerns again about new variants. And so we don't know if things are going to head in a positive, healthy direction or if we're going to be struggling with this for a while. So it's hard to say, honestly, uh, about what to expect. Our hope is that, it, particularly with school, I think that was something that I harped on quite a bit in you know, the conversations I had through COVID was getting the kids back in school because that is a huge sense of normalcy for them and a huge part of their life and their world. So my hope is that with that mostly back for them and mostly heading back to a baseline that that will be a positive thing, but I don't know. Well, before we wrap up, I wanna ask you, Dr. Connors, how do you think this generation will be shaped by COVID? Well, Dr. Rapp, you just mentioned some of the uh, concerns, at least that are, um on the table or potential concerns for the future about developmental growth and, and especially in young children. 
And so we have concerns about that there will be long-term mental health effects. But I also want to look at some positives. I think that there's nothing but good in, in appreciating and letting people know in a more general way that there are mental health concerns in children and in teens. You open by saying something like, uh, we don't like to think about it, and maybe we don't like to think about it, but we need to. And I mentioned the considering mental health uh, expenditures as investments in our future. And I think that the recognition that this is important. Remember that this was so prevalent even before COVID, that if some kind of good can come out of this by, by investing more in mental health of children, maybe we'll end up with stronger and resilient adults as a, as a result. Well, I want to thank you both for making time to discuss this important topic. My guests have been Dr. Greg Connors, who's professor and chair of pediatrics at Upstate, and Jennifer Rapke, who's a child psychologist at Upstate and the chief of the child psychiatry consult service at Golisano. Both of them see patients at the Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. What you need to know about the COVID-19 virus and fertility, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. One of the ongoing concerns about COVID-19 is how and whether the disease or the vaccine has an impact on fertility. Today, I'm speaking with an expert who's researched fertility for a good portion of his career. Dr. Kazim Chohan is a professor of pathology and obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate, and he's the director of andrology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Chohan. Thank you very much, Amber, and I appreciate. Well, before we get into fertility, let me ask you why it seems that men suffer more than women do if they get infected with COVID-19. Amber, when COVID came, we saw that many studies showed that men are having more severe symptoms with COVID and their death rate was high. And that initiated an issue that if men are suffering more with COVID, then certainly they will also have an effect on their fertility. But when it goes to why men suffer more, there are two bases for that. One is biology behind that. The other one is lifestyle issues on that. In terms of biology, there are two different hormones. Women have mainly estrogens and estrogens have a quality that they promote both innate and adaptive immune responses, and they lead to a faster clearance of pathogens. They help, estrogens help to have less severe symptoms in women, and they have more robust immune response to vaccines. When it comes to men, testosterone is the main culprit. Decreased levels, of testosterone have a suppressive effect on immune system. Estrogen and testosterone behave differently when it comes to immune responses. And on top of that, when we see that uh, men who suffer more, they are having underlying causes like diabetes, blood pressure, or lung diseases. So a decrease in testosterone level is another factor, and the decreasing levels of testosterone upregulate the receptors for angiotensin ACE2, and this is the main receptor for coronavirus, and these are the two things. When it comes to the other issues are when the testosterone level goes down, the receptors for the ACE2 angiotensin are increased in men. When it goes to lifestyle issues, men are more prone to like jobs like driving. They get more exposure outside. They smoke more and their lung capacity is poor than women. Studies have shown that women are more responsible when it comes to social distancing or using masks and all that. So all these things, they play a major role in the severity of uh, this disease. 
And based on these things, we can now see, and many studies showed that men suffer more than women. So did I hear you correctly? The male hormone testosterone has the effect of reducing the immune system's ability to work? That's true. So tell me, how might getting infected with COVID-19 affect fertility for men and for women? Because I know it may be different. Yes, biologically, when it comes to fertility, this is different. The system is different for both. In men, spermatogenesis takes place in the testes all the times. The testes have three major cells. One is leading cells. These cells produce testosterone and they have receptors for ACE2 and they can suffer from coronavirus. Once they are affected, the gentleman can go low on testosterone levels. And these low decreasing testosterone levels will upregulate ACE2 receptors in general in that person. But on top of that, once they are affected, spermatogenesis will be directly affected. And to save these sperm cells, sperm cells are haploid in nature. There is a blood testes barrier, which is made of gap junctions and myelite cells. And in there, there are Sertoli cells, which are mother cells or nurturing cells for spermatogonia. Once that blood testes barrier is broken, then the gentleman may have architis, inflammation in the testes there. But this happens in rare cases mostly. So far, we have seen in 3% cases when the patient is having severe impact on that. But the major effect, the normal thing we can see is that the major symptom in coronavirus infection is fever. In patients who suffer with febrile conditions, normally their semen parameters go down over a period of time during that infection or inflammatory period. Same will happen in coronavirus infection. That due to high fever, spermatogenesis will be affected. The semen parameters will go down. They may affect motility, sperm morphology, and there is a chance that that will increase sperm DNA fragmentation. On the female side, her cycles, menstrual cycle may be affected, but the menses or the reproductive cycle in a female is different than a man. She only produces one oocyte one per month or max, maybe to a limited one or two. So they both behave differently and biology for both of them are different. In this case, men will suffer more when it comes to fertility compared to women. So it's a higher risk for men to have their fertility impacted if they get sick with COVID-19? Absolutely. So what about getting the vaccine? Does the vaccine have any impact on fertility? So far, a research study showed the results that actually vaccines have no effect on fertility. They have a positive effect in terms that these semen parameters were evaluated in a clinical study that they evaluated semen parameters before vaccines and after vaccines. Actually, they found improved semen parameters after vaccines. So that is just a biological difference. We cannot say that vaccine improves semen parameters and make men more fertile. But that indicates that vaccinations are beneficial in men and there is no impact on fertility. And when it comes to females, figure out that it's very positive. A woman, once she is vaccinated, she gets antibodies on day five of vaccination and the fetus gets antibodies on day 16th day of vaccination. So vaccinations are actually beneficial for both men and women equally. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with fertility expert, Dr. Kazim Chohan. If someone had COVID-19, is it safe for them to try to conceive or do they need to wait a certain period of time? When we talk about fertility in terms of male, 
since we said male affected more with this uh, COVID-19, there is a so time period for men. This is called spermatogenic cycle, which is around 70 days. So if someone gets COVID-19, I will suggest that that person should stay away from any sexual activity if they are trying to conceive or at least use some protection for at least three months. The reasons are the major symptom of COVID-19 is fever. Any febrile condition can affect spermatogenesis that we normally see like if someone is having fever or patients having some varicoceles and all these kind of conditions. So in these uh, issues, semen parameters will go down and sometimes we get like sperm function goes down and patients may have some like sperm DNA fragmentation to avoid all these things. Based on my experience, I suggest at least they should avoid to conceive at least for three months. Once they pass one spermatogenic cycle, I hope they will be fine. So if I hear you correctly, the virus could affect the quality of a man's semen? Absolutely. What about the vaccine? Does that have any impact on the quality of a man's semen? One of the control studies, the data came out and it showed that the vaccines have no negative effect on semen parameters in men. Actually, the results from post-corona vaccine showed better results when it came to sperm concentrations, motility, and morphology. But the difference was not huge, and this may be a biological difference. The bottom line is that vaccines actually help to maintain, help to kind of keep the fertile potential of a male, and they have no negative effect on fertility. So just to sum up from what you've been saying, if you're a male who wants to have children and you've been infected with COVID-19, what is your advice for that person? When it comes to fertility, our patients are in two groups. One group is patients who are in fertile age. And there is a group of patients who have crossed the fertility age. And these people are maybe over mid 40s, 50s, 60s. Mostly these people have underlying causes and they will suffer most due to COVID-19. When it comes to a group who are in fertile age and who are concerned about fertility, these are the people in 20s, 30s, 40s who are planning to have a family. If one of them suffers from COVID-19, my suggestion is that that person should avoid or should have protected sex for at least 70 days, once spermatogenic cycle. And once that spermatogenic cycle passes away, he will have normal semen parameters. That's how this will go until or unless he gets like uh, very badly affected by COVID-19 and gets arthritis and that kind of stuff. For average normal population, they will have normal semen parameters once they pass that one spermatogenic cycle. Should a person who's planning to become pregnant or who is pregnant, should they get vaccinated? Absolutely. They should go for vaccination. That's the best way to go. And were you saying that the vaccine that the mother would get would protect the baby as well? There are many studies out there that the vaccines have protective effect both for the mother and for the fetus. And the mothers transfer antibodies to the fetus. These antibodies, they pass the uh, placenta and the babies are saved with that too. They so, also dwell women. So when the baby is born, the baby would already have some immunity to the SARS-CoV-2 virus? That's what biology tells us. Now, looking further out, is there any evidence or any suspicion that the vaccine could have an impact on the fertility of the child later on once they're an adult?
Well, a recent survey came out in October on October 28th from Kaiser Foundation, and they figured out that still three out of ten parents will not have their child vaccinated, and the 66% of parents of these three out of ten, their concern was that their baby will have an effect on the fertility due to vaccine. But we have to consider one thing that these vaccines are against immune response. They are not against the reproductive system. So having vaccination for the children will not have any negative impact on their fertility. That's good to know. Well, I really appreciate you making time for this interview. Dr. Kazim Chohan leads the Andrology Lab at Upstate, where he's a professor of pathology and of obstetrics and gynecology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Here's some expert advice from Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy from Upstate Medical University. What happens when someone learns they have HIV? So one of the first things that I like to do is talk to patients about um, whether or not this was a total surprise or whether they suspected that they might have HIV. And that can really make a big difference in how people handle the diagnosis. Um, so for some, it's, it's really quite a shock and quite overwhelming. Um, and they feel that there's a lot of pieces that they're going to have to address and they don't know even where to begin. And for other people, they thought this might be coming and they've sort of mentally prepared themselves. Perhaps they have friends living with HIV. So there's really a huge spectrum um, on which to find people in this situation in terms of um, their knowledge level and how they handle the diagnosis. Um, and one of the first things we talk about is really to reassure patients that um, as scary as this is for many, uh, this has become much more of a treatable disease than it was in the past. So that for the vast majority of people, the outlook is quite good. And the earlier you are diagnosed in terms of your immune status, so in terms of how healthy your immune system still is, um, the better you'll do. So we have tried to promote um, uptake of testing earlier on, and we are finding that in general we have patients coming in um, with a better immune status than what they did before. Um, so we review what, what that immune status means, um, how we check the patient's immune system and find out how healthy their immune system is. Um, and then we discuss whether or not they have any other kinds of illnesses that might be associated with HIV or not. Um, and then we, we start to go over or introduce the idea of taking medications for HIV. Um, so we do do that very early on in the diagnosis, and that's because at this point um, medication is recommended as soon as possible after testing positive um, because mounting evidence um, has shown that there are major benefits to the immune system in starting earlier. Um, and another piece of, of good news is that the medications that are available now are much better tolerated than they were in the past. So we have um, four different regimens that are one pill once a day and so most patients, I would say the vast majority of patients who are starting out now will start on a one pill once a day regimen um, and sometimes two pills once a day. But it's really um, much, much easier to, to deal with than uh, what was the case in the past. And the side effects of those medications have also become much more tolerable. So um, most of my patients actually don't experience side effects, or if they do experience effects, it's that they actually feel that their health is improved. Um, so I really try to encourage people that um, if you're able to get on medicine and stay on medicine um, and think about ways to just incorporate that into your life, that ultimately HIV can become a very small, small problem in your overall, uh, the overall picture of your health. You've been listening to Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy from Upstate Medical University. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, 
the Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Eric Mahan Howd and Catherine Howd Mahan are married poets who teach at Ithaca College. Their writing styles are different, but they each sent us a powerful response to our request for poems about the pandemic. First is Eric's poem, Inside Artist. Wears day masks and washes them before going to bed in the claustrophobic night. Inside artist draws with blood pools on kitchen tiles, a sword piercing yellow pajamas patterned with strewn tarot cards. Inside artist dreams rainbows over June weddings and fresh air gasped by an audience under a red moon amphitheater. Inside artist waits for blindfolds reveal, the sharp shine of sun needling the back of vision. Inside artist wears thin and hungers for words delivered by touchless bodies with gloved hands, blue and powdered like a warm spring day. And now Catherine's poem, When She Tells Me Pansies Will Die, I say no. I say my purple and yellow joy will thrive, will persevere against skies of violent gray, against what we call virus. My garden is not ignorant, but it shouts green, and green shoots thrive. Who needs count false roots of twisted lies? I disregard close panic, try to push aside what to me that I will not survive. When I was born, the world split hard, and ever since, I've learned to live with what my dark, endangered love can give. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, preparing your child for surgery, and an overview of pancreatic cancer. If you missed any of today's show or for more information on a variety of health, science, and medical topics, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.